Now, the week prior to that, though, we were in 2 Samuel, and we looked at chapters 8 and 9. Just to remind everybody where we're at in our study through those two books, Lessons from the Kingdom for today, as we continue to examine these books of history and find out, well, what is it that God has to say through the experiences we find there and God's interactions with his people? How does that apply to my life today? What does God want to show me? How does he want to grow me? What does he want to reveal about himself? Well, As we were in chapters 8 and 9, we found David in faith pressing forward with the armies of Israel to conquer and occupy all the land that God had promised to give the nation. And having done so successfully, the king then looked to expand the territory in his own heart, you might say. He started out looking at Israel's borders, and then he went inward to his own life, seeking to find if there was anyone still alive from the house of Saul and Jonathan whom he might bless. And so, rather than uh, seek their harm or see them as a threat, David found a grandson of the former kings who happened to be crippled. If you uh, were with us, you remember that. And he reestablished him, his name was Mephibosheth, over Saul's household and wealth, also bringing him into the palace that he might eat at David's table and uh, be there with his own sons. It was a huge display of grace in a day and time when survivors of the prior ruling family were typically executed so as to keep them from threatening the throne and making a claim to it. At this point, David remains for us. He is an example of trusting God, standing in and extending grace And that same attitude continues right into chapter 10, where we find ourselves this morning. David looking not to war against a neighbor, but instead to bless them in their time of of personal pain and hardship. Though their response, we're going to find, is slightly less than what David was hoping for. And so as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 10, our title for this morning's message is When Your Enemy Doesn't Want to be loved. And that kind of gives away where we're going this morning and what happens for David. I wonder if any of us here this morning, I wonder if any of us have sought to bless and encourage or otherwise show love to someone who did not respond in kind. I'm sure many of us can relate to that. Maybe they misinterpreted our gesture. Um, Or simply, they don't like us or didn't like us. Unrequited love, it's called. That can be painful. Pastor Chuck Swindoll shared once that he'd, he'd read about a young man who was determined to win the affection of a woman who refused to even talk to him. Young love. Well, she wouldn't acknowledge him, and so he decided that the best way to her heart was through the written word. He was kind of a romantic, and so he thought he would win her over in that way. So he began writing and mailing her love letters. He wrote and mailed a note every day to this young lady. Each day of the week, she opened her mailbox and received a love letter from this young man. When she refused, however, to respond, he increased his his output to three notes a day, three letters. 
He wrote her more than 700 letters in all. In the end, she married the mailman. <laughs> David's going to have a similar success in, uh, he's going to have similar success in today's chapter, a similar outcome, you might say. And while his response to that disappointment isn't exactly what we would call a New Testament response um, or path that we could necessarily choose to take, there's nonetheless a lot here for us to learn. So let's pray, and we'll look at the first five verses. Father, as we open your word this morning, we're praying that, God, you would cause, Lord, us to be able to receive and understand, God, Father, Lord, uh, there's many different things in our lives that keep us from hearing from you. And so, Lord, we want to lay those things at your feet right now. Maybe it's a, a pride, a stubbornness, a sin. Lord, maybe distraction or anxiety, fear or worry. Father, in this moment, we want you to speak through your word as you do, as you promised to. God, we pray that it would be to us Lord, like that, that sword, living and active, God, that it would, it would divide in our lives, God, cutting to that, that deepest place where we need a touch from you. Would you minister to us this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our first point this morning is rejected, which is what's going to be David's experience. Verse 1, it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. So in the last chapter, we followed David seeking to show kindness to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And here he wants to show kindness again, uh, this time to the kingdom of the Ammonites. Well, evidently at some point in the past, the king of the Ammonites, Nahash, had shown some kind of kindness to David. Perhaps while he was wandering uh, in the desert from Saul, we don't know the details, but David remembered and wanted to let his son Hanun, the new king, know that he'd appreciated his father. And we should also point out that it was, in fact, Saul's first military victory uh, in 1 Samuel 11 that was over the people of Ammon. Those were the first people group that he had defeated David's predecessor. And so David might also be trying to reinforce his relationship with this land and their king, mending fences a little bit. Though David also had fought against the Ammonites previously, or at least brought them into servitude. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 12. Ammon is listed among the nations that David had subdued and from which he took silver and gold, which were dedicated to the Lord. But subdued is not the same as, as defeated. Um, they were submitted to Israel's authority, but David wanted to show them grace, to bless them. And he chose in this season to live with an open hand and heart, to love his enemies. And even those whom it could be argued he had no obligation to. It wasn't, it wasn't incumbent on him to do what he's doing, but he did it anyway. It was taking the high road without question. 
Jesus speaks to this in the Sermon on the Mount. And Luke records in his gospel, chapter 6, verse 37, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus, in speaking of extending grace and mercy and forgiveness to others, he says, be generous. Because to the degree that you extend it to others, you are going to experience the same. Sometimes the circumstances are not always ideal for giving. But Jesus wants our generosity to flow more from a choice than convenience or comfort. Isn't it true that very often when we're wrestling in particular with forgiveness or being merciful, we, we tend to run through sort of a, a diagnostic in our minds determining, well, is this individual deserving? And what should they really get? David is choosing to believe the best in his would-be enemy to give them the opportunity to be better. Sometimes that works out. Um, on occasion, people rise to the bar that we set through kindness and grace. Now, Ammon is that territory that's east of the Jordan River. It's on the other side of the territories of those tribes that had settled there, Gad, Reuben, and, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And this is present-day Jordan. Ammon should sound familiar because that name has continued forward to the present day. The, the capital of Jordan today is, of course, Ammon, and they derive that name from the Ammonites who are their descendants, or those that went before them, I should say. The Jordanians are their descendants today. Now, clearly... Despite this nation living under the authority of Israel, they, they had diplomatic relations. David had the capacity to reach out to them. Um, David knew and mourned the death of their king, and he sent these official emissaries to communicate his grief and comfort to the king's son, Hanun. This wasn't just political. For David, it was personal. He genuinely cared. So here we find David reaching out to the royal palace, uh, expressing his sorrow over Nahash's passing. And so David's delegation arrives and is received by the Ammonites. But not at all in the way that he'd hoped. And I know I've already kind of given it away. We, we know this is not going to go well. Verse 3, just how bad was it? Let's find out. It was pretty bad. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore, Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, just honoring the scriptures there, and sent them away. Verse 5, when they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. 
So that did not go very well. That was not the response you would hope for when you send a bouquet of flowers or a box of chocolate, um, and, and David is going to be disappointed. Uh, this handling of Israel's ambassadors is probably not going over very well with David when he learns how they were treated. We really don't know what conclusion Hanun would have come to on his own had these princes or advisors not gotten involved, but they convinced him that David's intentions were anything but pure, um, that rather than seeking to comfort the new king, David was actually trying to spy out the land, determine their weaknesses so that he could come and just utterly conquer and destroy them. What motivated these guys to think this and to try to convince the king? We're not told. We really don't know. It's possible that they just uh, determined in their own hearts and minds that they really did think that's what David was doing. It's also possible that they were trying to um, maybe gain favor with the king by appealing to his ego or something like, oh, you should fight against David and don't trust this guy, uh, anticipating a problem which, as it turned out, didn't exist, but did create everything that happens afterwards, created a huge complication for Hanun. So given this conspiracy theory that uh, Hanun has been fed, how does he react? Well, as the scripture records, and as we read a moment ago, he shaved off their beards, cut off their garments in the middle, and uh, at their buttocks and sent them away. I just wanted to be able to say buttocks three times on a Sunday morning. So anyway, um, there's no need to study ancient Jewish or Ammonite culture to understand that this was not a compliment or in any way expressing honor, okay? Um, cutting off someone's, you know, tailoring someone's garment at the hips and sending them out essentially naked to march through town to go home, that's, that's not like, you know, proper etiquette and reception. That's not what you do. The shaving of the beards, this was a big deal. I mean, we, we think of, you know, being sent out of town without pants, basically like, whoa, Oh, that's crazy beard. We think, ah, not the beard was probably, possibly, almost a bigger deal. Uh, Jews, according to Leviticus 19, they weren't to shave their beards. Think of Orthodox Jews today that have long beards. They don't um, cut the uh, the sideburn area, and that was that way in ancient times as well. It's not as though they took a knife or something and cut the beard this way. It's much more likely that he literally shaved half of the face so that they looked foolish, so that it would grow out uneven, so maybe they would have to shave the other side. And at that day and time, only slaves shaved their face. The beard was an expression of masculinity. It was tied into spirituality. There were all kinds of things going on here. The cutting of the, of the garment, though, we shouldn't just think of that as being humiliating in and of itself. Remember, the Jews had these things called the, the seat seats or the, the tassels, the fringes of their garments. It's also something you see in Orthodox Judaism today, where at the corners they have these little tassels that come down. And according to, according to the law, those were reminders of the law itself. They were instructed to have those fringes sort of like 
in olden times, we would maybe put a string around our finger, right, to remind us of something. The string hung from the corners of their garments to remind them, God told them, of the law itself. Numbers 15 is where that's found. You can look it up. But all around, this was incredibly insulting, and uh, it's not going to be left unanswered. Really, it wasn't just insulting. This was a declaration of war. David had sent these men to comfort, to communicate uh, a message of, of sorrow and, and grief between the two nations in, in considering that the king had died and, and it was responded to in the most insulting way possible. So David receives word as to what's happened and he goes to meet the men. They don't come to Jerusalem. They actually went to Jericho and David goes there to them coming home in this condition. I mean, they would have found pants along the way, but um, with the beard half shaven, it would be too humiliating to, to come back to Jerusalem. And so David says to them, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Now, a question before we move on. How do we respond when an act of love or kindness is rejected? It could be a small gesture. It could be a big gesture. It could be a gift. It could be just something simple that you do to show kindness, to show uh, politeness. When a friend, rather than appreciating that kind gesture, maybe ignores it. How do we respond when a, a spouse or someone you love, instead of thanking you or responding graciously, is rude? And when you've done special, something special or thoughtful for them, they, they act as though they don't care. Maybe you served a family member in some way only to have them dismiss the act as useless or unneeded. Instead of thankfulness, instead of gratitude, you encounter rudeness, selfishness, or even a mean spirit? How do we react when we encounter that kind of a response to our graciousness? While there's nothing wrong with graciously confronting that kind of behavior to try to understand what's behind it, to get to the bottom of it, at the same time, it should challenge our motives and attitudes in giving and serving to begin with. Why did we do it? What was the reason? What was the motivation? Were we being nice just so that they would do something for us? Because as, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes that's exactly why we do nice things. Because sometimes we're, we're guilty of serving, ministering, and honoring another, giving, because we want something out of it. We want them to do something for us. Maybe a simple as, as stroking our ego. It could be as little as I did it, and if I don't get that thank you, if I didn't, didn't get that little appreciation, it kind of it turns me off. Kind of kind of offends me. Like, why did I bother doing that? You didn't deserve that. All I wanted was a thank you. All I wanted was a little acknowledgement and appreciation. It exposes our hearts as, as maybe wanting it to be a little bit more about us than it should be. Jesus warns against this. In Luke chapter 12, verse 14, he was at a feast, actually, that he'd been welcomed to a dinner. And he also said to him who invited him, 
I'd be kind of nervous to have Jesus over for dinner because he'd always, you know, have some teaching that sometimes ends up implicating guests and things like that. It might be safer to just go to somebody else's house and kind of sit in the back where it's safe. I don't know. When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. And if we're honest with ourselves, we kind of like it that way. We like to stay within our own tribe. We like to hang out with the people that are like us, that we're comfortable with. You, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do something nice for me, I'll do something nice for you. And, and honestly, there, there's a level in which that's just healthy friendship. But see, the Lord wants to stretch us outside of that, where there's a, a giving and where there's a hospitality and a serving that's not looking for anything at all. And there's something about when we're not treated the way we want to be, when we do something nice that reminds us, oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to be doing it for any reason other than simply as unto the Lord, just to honor God. There's something in that experience that should challenge and stretch us that way a little bit more. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Earlier in Luke, Jesus, Luke rather, excuse me, he records Jesus having spoken these words at the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 6 verse 35, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your father also is merciful. The question is, do we do things to get something in return? Again, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we do, and we shouldn't. I think about myself. There's a lot of things I do that may appear to be kind and magnanimous and, oh, you're so generous or gracious. But if you, if you had the capacity by the Spirit of God to look and see the darkness in my heart, you would be getting in your car and driving on the other side of the hill and going to some other church. Like, man, you are wicked, Pastor Aaron, but you are too. Because if I could see in your heart... I would be packing up and, you know, putting out. No, I'm just kidding. But when we encounter those that don't appreciate us or, or what we've done, it tests our hearts and motives. Maybe it's a reminder to simply do things as unto the Lord and not in order to be recognized or receive anything, even a thank you. Just do it for Jesus. Well, understanding how God would have us to respond, let's read verses 6 through 12 12, to to learn what David did. Forced to war. Verse 6. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maacha, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000 men. I mean, what else are they going to do at this point? Um, I don't know if Hanun regretted what he'd done, realized how foolish it was, 
Or if at this point he's just sticking to his guns, like sometimes you do something dumb and you just, you know, stick your heels into the ground. It's like, all right, I'm already committed. I'm just going to go all the way here. Um, but there's no way out of this either way. War is coming to Ammon because of how he treated David's ambassadors. He, he has thrown down the gauntlet literally foolishly, he and his men, they've gotten themselves into this predicament for which they are unprepared. He, he rallies his armies, the Ammonites, but then he's got to go and hire these mercenary soldiers of the Syrians and the Arameans from these different areas that are named. Some 32,000 soldiers in total to add to their own forces. So King David, no doubt, relying on spies who observe this, determines his next move. Verse 7. Now, when David heard of it, that, that Hanun is gathering and preparing this army to fight, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Joab, of course, was the commander of Israel's armies. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate of, of the city. And the Syrians of Zobah, Bethrehob, Ishtob, and Maaka were by themselves in the field. So David, not knowing that Hanun has um, prepared, excuse me, so David, uh, now knowing, uh, now knowing that Hanun has prepared his people for war, he sends Joab with the armies of Israel to the gates of Ammon. Joab, we read, is leading the army of the mighty men. This is the first mention in Samuel of these mighty men men or David's mighty men. Some of you have heard of them before if you've studied the life of David or first and second Samuel. And in a few chapters, we're, we're going to be introduced to this group in greater detail. But suffice it to say, some of, the, some of these were those who'd come to David when he was in exile. Do you remember that? When he was at the cave of Adullam, we read back in first Samuel that uh, after he'd left, been driven out from from the capital, from the palace, because Saul wanted him dead, that, that there were those that came to David there in that place who were distressed, they were in debt, and they were discontented. This was this malcontent group that coalesced around David. And yet, they'd grown under David's leadership into these great warriors. They'd become these, these mighty men. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote of these soldiers. These, these men came to David when his fortunes were at the lowest ebb. And he himself was regarded as a rebel and an outlaw. And they remained faithful to him throughout their lives. And then he comments, happy are they who can follow a good cause in its worst estate. For theirs is true glory. These mighty men, they'd hung with David when it wasn't popular. <laughs> they stayed with him through the, the dark valleys. And now they were with him and, and God had grown and matured them in this time when David had finally come to the throne and Israel was, was prosperous and the kingdom was blessed. There's, there's something there for us about, about being patient and faithful and trusting the Lord through difficult times and not just being fair weather followers. They were faithful and they fought in those difficult times for David. And now they enjoyed serving and fighting with and for the king as he'd come into the kingdom promised to him. But Israel's armies have a problem. Verse 9, when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, 
He chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. So Joab is trapped. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So basically, Joab arrives for battle and finds himself trapped. He's hedged in. They roll up in front of, in front of the, the city of Ammon, and there's an army there ready for them, but then all of a sudden they recognize that there's another group of Syrians, another front that's coming in from behind, these hired mercenaries. So Joab determines to split his forces and fight both fronts separately. He instructs his brother Abishai, who was also a captain in the army, says, you take your soldiers this way, and I'll take mine that way, and if either of us get into too much trouble, we'll double back and help the other. Joab concludes his instructions with this encouraging word. Verse 12, just kind of interesting because Joab hasn't always been a beacon of wisdom. He's, he hasn't always done or said the right thing, but here he gets it right and, and, and offers this rallying word of encouragement to the, to the man. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is right, excuse me, do what is good in his sight. Tells them, be courageous. Don't be afraid. Be strong for Israel. Remember who you're fighting for. We will trust the Lord to do what is good in his sight. Our God is in control, he tells them. It's a great challenge on the eve of the battle. He basically is telling him, get your eyes off of the enemy, get your eyes off of what's in front of us and on to the Lord. He's in control, he's good, he's been faithful up until this moment, and he's going to finish this. Now briefly, before we go to this morning's next point, are there times when you and I have to fight in the context of what we're talking about this morning? Can we choose peace? Well, I want to remind us of a passage from Romans that we've read so many times in this series and through these studies in Samuel. Romans 12, verse 17. Paul writes and he says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good in the sight of all men. And then he writes in verse 18, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul's reiterating what Jesus clearly taught. We're, we're not to look to avenge ourselves, we're to be peacemakers, walking in meekness, trusting God with our enemies and those who offend and hurt us. But it's important to understand verse 18. Paul wrote to the listener, to the reader, if it is possible... Inasmuch as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But it's not always possible, is it? <laughs> and sometimes we've done everything we can do. We're like, Lord, I, it, it, what depends on me, what's on my shoulders, what I can control, I've done everything I can, but this, this person is a jerk. So what am I going to do, Lord? 
Well, as was the, I'm sorry if I stumbled you by saying jerk. As was the case here for David, sometimes we encounter the same, where we've come into a situation being peacemakers, seeking to, to do well by another. Does that mean in those situations where we've tried to reconcile, where we've sought to follow the biblical prescriptions for conflict resolution found in Matthew chapter 18 and elsewhere, that now we have permission to go to war like David did? Like, okay, all right. I like this. Preach. You know, okay. I, I've been peaceful. I, I did the nice thing, and, and they wouldn't receive it, so now I can go and slash their tires or um, do horrible things to them. No. In some cases, first of all, we can just choose to let it go. In others where that's not possible or wise, we can choose to establish boundaries. Forgiving someone who has hurt you but not taken responsibility or changed their behavior does not require you to remain their friend or to trust them. While David lived under the law and had the responsibility and the mandate to defend the nation, we, on the other hand, do not, all right? We can pray for peace. We can work toward reconciliation following Scripture. But in some cases, we need to walk away and trust God with the results, maintaining, again, those healthy boundaries and thus preventing further harm through an unhealthy or even a toxic relationship. Now, this applies very differently depending on the specific relationship and situation. So talk to me if you have questions about this. It's hard to make a blanket statement about relationships in this way and not take into consideration every possible nuance. Um, we are going to be speaking to this a little bit more in the You Can Ask That series. But again, feel free to follow up with me on that. But finally, let's see how this battle turned out. Verses 13 through 19, our final point this morning, victories and peace. Verse 13, so Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. So, so intimidated were these mercenary Syrians that they ran from the battle and, and uh, that then drove the Ammonites to retreat into the city and to do the same. So the, the battle lines just basically melted before the armies of Israel and Joab's command. So he decided for now he'd lead Israel's armies back to Jerusalem, though this war will continue forward into chapter 11. The fight isn't over. But it should remind us of God's promises to Israel that should they seek and honor him, keeping and following the law, they would be blessed in this way. God really had told Israel that this very thing would happen. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 and 2. Moses, speaking of the word of the Lord, he said, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. I love that idea. We think of, you know, being overtaken by an enemy. But Moses was telling Israel, no, if you serve and honor God, you'll be overtaken by blessings. 
because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And Moses goes on to list all kinds of blessings that would be poured out over the nation should they keep the law. One of those blessings being in verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven. Very much like what we just read. Israel coming up against their enemies and the enemy just, just fleeing, running. Now, ironically, the Syrians, who were only hired to join this fight, end up being the ones to rally and confront Israel's armies. Verse 15, when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Hilam. And Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. So the Syrians, probably at this point, feeling they needed to make a stand, at least the Israelites maintain uh, an advantage, maybe a permanent foothold over them, maybe even eventually destroying them altogether, determined to draw up these battle lines here at this city called Hilam an area in the central Jordan plain, east, east of the river. You'd think they'd known better because David had already defeated them once under Hadadezer's leadership. We read about that in chapter 8. This was the one that David had taken the, the golden shields from that he dedicated to the Lord with all the other uh, treasures and spoils of war that he'd won. But David is now going to get personally involved again in the battle. Verse 17. Now it was told David, when it was told David, excuse me, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Lesson learned, at least by the Syrians. David, having joined the fight, he led Israel's armies in killing the 700 charioteers, the 40,000 uh, horsemen, as well as the Shobach, commander of those armies. But these guys were smart, at this point anyway. They decided to cut their losses and establish a peace treaty with David and the nation of Israel, which he agreed to. And these Syrians became servants to the Israelites. And it reminded us again that Israel was not under some obligation to wipe out, to eradicate everyone living at their borders. Yes, there was a war here, but once the enemy was defeated, once they surrendered, Israel was able to live at peace with them. Verse 19, so the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. So again, that mistake won't be repeated now, it's easy to read this Old Testament story found here in chapter 9 and assume application that isn't necessarily ours. So David fought his enemies. I can too, right? I can take up this posture of war against those that, that cross me, against those that give me, give me a hard time in my life. 
And I've met Christians like that who believe they can reach certain circumstances and situations where, where basically they take it as, as permission to no longer behave like Christians. Like now I can act like they're my enemy because of what they've done. As I spoke to earlier, David, he occupied the throne and therefore by rights and divine instruction, he bore the responsibility in leading the nation in war, punishing enemies and evildoers with the sword. And those are things today that we're to trust God with. And of course, uh, our own law enforcement and government and legal system and elected officials. While we're not called to passivity, and there are plenty of ways that we can proactively uh, resist evil in our lives and in this world, generally speaking, we have a different mandate as Christians. And it again comes from the Sermon on the Mount, which we quoted earlier. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise, his sun rise, on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? You haven't done anything extraordinary is what Jesus is saying. If you love the people that it's easy to love. Jesus is saying, you, you, you want to do something that actually requires faith? You want to do something that involves following me? Love the people that don't love you. Love the people that hate you. What does that have to do with following Jesus? I, there's something about the cross where I think Jesus actually laid his life down for people that hated them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Jesus is saying, if you're just loving the people that are like you, that agree with you, that think like you, people from your tribe, are you any different from the world? Because they take care of their own too. What's extraordinary, what, what displays the gospel in a way that the world can see is when we love people that don't love us, is when we love and serve people that do not deserve it. People that have maybe even done the exact opposite to us. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect or holy, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is hard for us. It's hard for me. Everything natural and instinctual within us wants justice. We want to see our enemies suffer or at least get what they deserve. But in harboring that kind of attitude, in some cases that bitterness, we forget that we deserve justice too. And isn't it funny how that happens? We get to places where we're, 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 we are self-appointed authorities on that which is displeasing to God in our culture, in our lives, in the world around us. And we forget that we used to be just as displeasing to God. And, and that were his spirit removed from us, we would immediately devolve into exactly what we were before the cross. 
we forget the grace and the mercy that, that we've received. It's from that undeserved experience, that gift, as Ephesians 2 speaks to it, that we're to share with those around us, especially so the ones that, that we deem least worthy, least deserving. We make a grave error in the church when we allow ourselves to take up battle lines against the very ones in our world that are simply behaving in keeping with their nature, acting as though they're not redeemed because they're not. But Jesus has called you and I to be salt and light. And, and very often the way that people get to know and understand that is by our different behavior when we act counterintuitively to what they would expect. When we do the very thing opposite and different. I remember, I, I believe, in fact, it was a church shooting at a historically black African-American church uh, over on the East Coast. I think, I think the church went back 200 years. Forgive me, I don't remember the name. It was a few years back. And the shooter had come in, and I, I remember, and, and these, these uh, interviews tend to maybe hit the headline for a minute, then they get buried I think he'd come into a prayer meeting that was taking place. And, and the TV cameras showed up and they interviewed someone. And, and within moments, they were already expressing forgiveness. I, I forgive him. He hasn't apologized. He hasn't repented even yet. What are you doing? Something is, is flowing from a life that's been miraculously changed, a life that recognizes and, and realizes, but for the grace of God, there go I. And my Savior's blood was shed to cover that kind of shame and sin. It's forgiven mine, and if that person will receive it, theirs will be forgiven as well. And I want to behave the way my Savior did. That is a testimony that the world cannot deny, and I would go so far as to say does not understand. I like the advice author C.S. Lewis gives in his famous work, Mere Christianity. For, for those of us that would maybe struggle with that, I certainly do, with loving an enemy, forgiving, extending mercy to people that don't deserve it, maybe aren't even asking for it. He says, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. I'm going to read the middle line once more. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. Have you found that to be true? Loving a person has far more to do with obedience than we'd like to admit 
or realize. But the truth is, along the lines of something else Lewis once wrote, when you do the things of love, the emotions and the feelings follow. Forgiving, extending grace and kindness, love, it is first and always a choice. It's a decision of the mind, not the heart. The emotion and the heart follow. It requires faith and obedience to get past that first step. Let's stand as we take these last few moments, close our service, and maybe respond and do some business with the Lord in our own hearts. Maybe surrender to him areas where we've been resisting and saying no. Father, what we're talking about entering into, it's not something we can do on our own, Lord. Loving our enemies, forgiving someone who's offended us, Jesus following you in this way, it, it can only happen if you are sitting on the throne of our hearts. It can only happen if we are indwelt by your spirit. If we've experienced redemption and grace and mercy ourselves, that, that we've received that gift that you might be at work in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure, that we might walk in those good works that you've ordained ahead of time. God, we, we confess right now that we are not able. And we're asking that in our weakness, your power would be made perfect. This morning, if that's you, if you've got trouble loving an enemy, extending mercy and grace, allowing what's happened in your life at the foot of the cross to be manifest to those around you, those that deserve it the least, would you just lift up your hand? I'd like to pray for you. It can kind of be an act of surrender to the Lord in giving that, that struggle, that part of your heart to him, as we just humble ourselves and say, Lord, would you fill me with your love? God, would you teach me to love in the way that you do? And I, I see lots of hands, and the Lord sees those. Father, I pray that, God, you would take control of our hearts. God, these are things that, that the natural man cannot comprehend, let alone live out. We need you to change us, Lord, that we would be people of the cross, that we would take up our cross daily, that we would deny ourselves Jesus and follow you, that we would allow our lives to be a conduit for your mercy, grace, forgiveness, for your love, Lord. Whether it's in little things, God, little, little things that we're easily offended by, Father, or, or big things. Things that require a little faith, things that require a lot of faith. God, either way, we've got to trust you. It's got to be you doing it in our lives. And so we want to trust you, Father, in that way. Jesus, we want to walk in the freedom of serving and obeying you. We want to surrender to you and trust you. And we, we do that now as we, as we open our lips and worship you in Jesus' name.